So this is the story of the binding of Isaac. This is traditionally called the Akedah, which is the Hebrew word for the binding of. I've not really heard that name, but every time I was reading about it this time around, I came up a lot. So maybe you're familiar with that. The binding of Isaac, the almost sacrifice of Isaac, you could call it. If you've not heard this story before, buckle in, <laughs> because this is an astonishing piece of scripture. You could call this the climax of Abraham's life, the climax of his story, which is interesting because we've already seen the birth of Isaac. That's what we've been waiting for, right? For the whole book of Genesis, we've been waiting for Isaac to be born. Well, Isaac has been born. So what's left to tell, really? Well, there is this story here. In this story, God is going to ask Abraham to sacrifice everything that he has loved and everything that he's waited so long for, literally to sacrifice it. And his faith, which has been built over his whole life, is going to be put to the ultimate test. And I think this story is illustrative of the way that God deals with each one of us. Every one of us is called to that same place by God. We're called to confront the utter depths of our souls, to face the utter loss of everything that we cling to in this life and to let go of it. This is why for many people, they can't go too deep in their religion because if they go too deep, it gets too real. But we need to get real with the Lord. Abraham is going to pass the test tonight, but I'm just going to go ahead and start with the appeal and keep it going the whole time. Have you left behind everything to follow Jesus? Or are there still things that God has got to break you of? You know, like a racehorse that has all this potential and all this power, but until he can be, so to speak, broken by the one that's going to ride him, he's never going to be able to do what he was created to do to the best of his ability. Same thing with us. And God loves you too much to let you continue in sin and selfishness and codependence unchallenged. God refuses to watch you tie yourself down with all these things and never bring it up and say it's time to let that go. He desires all of you. He desires everything from you. Not only that, he deserves everything from you. He created you. He sent his son to die for you. He's going to take you to heaven someday. So if you will let him, the Holy Spirit will put the finger on your innermost being with all its flaws, with all its failures. Bible talks a lot about being naked before the Lord. That the Lord strips us, so to speak. That there, there's nothing that we can hide from God. The things that we've buried, sometimes even the things that we've hidden from ourselves and we don't realize about ourselves, God sees it. And the Lord wants to bring that up. And he says, it's time to die to yourself. It's something that we all aspire to. But it's also required. If you want to live the abundant life that God's promised, if you want to see the fullness of what God could give you, you've got to be ready to die to you. Not just to the things about you that you don't like, but everything. It's all well and good to talk about God's blessings. And I saw a comment made on the internet today, which is never a great place to look for good ideas, but somebody was talking about how they were a pastor and they had all this student loan debt and they couldn't pay it back. And somebody said, it's easy to make money as a pastor. All you got to do is have a great YouTube channel, put out a, a positive message and everybody will, will follow you. And I suppose they were trying to be helpful, <laughs> but 
It's not just about putting out a positive message, although I think the gospel is very positive. It's not just the blessings of God. The blessings of God come at a price. In one sense, they're free, but in another sense, it costs you everything. And if you're unwilling to sacrifice that which you love most, then that thing is going to put a lid on the experience of the fullness of life that God wants to give you. These things are for our good. And we're going to see that Abraham stepped up and did what he was called to do. And I pray that each one of us will be called to do the same and will respond to that tonight. So let's read these first two verses now. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Hmm. So we read, after these things, the last things we read were the birth of Isaac, the sending away of Hagar and Ishmael when Isaac was weaned, and then the treaty that Abraham made with King Abimelech. So we're not given any more specific time than that, and so there's been some speculation at exactly how old Isaac is here. Jewish tradition had Isaac at 37 years old, and that comes from a lot of assumptions that I'm not going to dive into. I do not think that's the case because it's going to call him several times uh, the Hebrew word na'ar, which means young man, or your Bible might have the translation the lad. So it's not quite a little boy, but it's not quite a grown man either. So probably much younger than 37. And God speaks to Abraham again. God has spoken to Abraham many times throughout his life. And I think it's been kind of fun to watch Abraham mature along the way. How God has slowly taken away all the things that he was relying on until he had nothing left to rely on except God himself. God has been shaping Abraham into the man that he needed him to be. First, he said, leave your family and leave your home and come here. Well, he kind of obeyed and then he finally obeyed, but he had brought Lot with him. So he had to send Lot away and then he wasn't going to have a child. And then he had Ishmael and God said, no, not Ishmael, another child to be born. Finally, Isaac is born. And you can see how God has been working on Abraham. (laughs) And I think we can look back on our own lives too and see that God's been working on us. Can't you agree? Can you look back on your life and see how God has liberated you from certain sins that you were dealing with or attitudes that you had or lies that you were believing? Maybe some false teaching that had been brought into your life that God removed. The same is true of Abraham. God is saying, I want to make a mighty nation out of Abraham, but he needs a lot of work. But luckily, God was willing to work on him. But now, God is asking Abraham to do something that's not just difficult, but almost unconscionable, unthinkable. He says, offer up Isaac as a burnt offering. Go and sacrifice your only son. Now, how could God ask Abraham to do that? This is so obviously wrong (laughs) to to sacrifice your own child. And to be very clear, the Bible says that that would be wrong. In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 1 through 5, the law of Moses specifically addresses a cult that would worship a god called Molech. And Molech was a god that was a statue that had his arms held out like a, like a platform, and the inside of the idol would be heated up to this intense heat, and people would place their infant children on the outstretched arms of the idol, and they'd be burned up. It was called making your child pass through the fire. And in the law of Moses, God specifically says, you will not do that. 
And he says, and if anybody does, they're going to be put to death. And he also says, and if anybody knows that that went on and ignores it, they're going to be put to death too. Very serious thing. We see that King Ahaz in 2 Kings 16 made one of his sons to pass through the fire. And we see that Josiah in 2 Kings 23 came in and finally did away with all of these holy sites, so to speak, where this would happen. There's also the example of Jephthah in Judges chapter 11, but that's not a good example. It's an example of how far gone Israel was. So calm yourself if you're worried. God is not endorsing child sacrifice here. In fact, later on, he would rage against the nations for doing something like that. And if you know this story, you know that God had no intention of permitting Abraham to go through with this. But he is asking him to do the unthinkable. He even hangs a flag on it. He almost tries to stir up the difficulty. He says, Isaac, your only son whom you love. He's telling Abraham to give up everything that he had lived for and everything that he had hoped for his whole life. It's an intense commandment. But the same command is given to every man, woman, and child who desires to follow after Jesus Christ. You must lose everything in order to gain him. Jesus put it this way. We're going to quote from Jesus a lot tonight. Luke 14, verses 26 and 27, and then I'm going to skip a bit and read verse 33. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, Lord, I want to be saved. He said, well, if you come to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know what happens to people that carry crosses, right? They die. At the end of that road, there's a death waiting for them. And in verse 33, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let me read that last one again. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, cannot be a Christian. We've all grown so accustomed to hearing of the benefits of following Christ. And there are tons of benefits to following Christ. We'll talk about them on Sunday again. But Jesus, when he was talking about these things, would also come in and say, but have you counted what it's going to cost you to come after me? How much does it cost to follow Jesus, to know God? How much does it cost to experience his Holy Spirit? It costs everything. Everything you have ever hung your hope on. Everything that you love most. And this is something that we are culturally not prepared to deal with. And it's not just our culture. I don't want to pick on us, but it's the one that we live in. We are stuff havers. Right? We are those that are not accustomed to not getting what we want. It's written right in our founding documents that the pursuit of happiness is an inalienable right. And Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you've got to give up everything that makes you happy. It costs everything. In essence, God is asking Abraham to sacrifice his own identity. He calls him, he says, Abraham. What does that mean? Do you remember? Abraham means father of many, father of a multitude. God said, I'm going to call you that because you're going to be the father of many nations. So Abraham's identity was wrapped up in being the father of a coming multitude. And God says, I want you to go and sacrifice your only son. I want you to make your destiny impossible. God 
needs no less from you. Who are you? Think about that. You know your name. You know your history. You've got a resume. You've got a Facebook profile. You know who you are. But really, who are you? What is the one thing that you cannot give up? What is the one thing that you cannot give up? The one thing that defines you as a person. If we were to be naming you based on that attribute, what would your name be? How have you defined yourself? Maybe you've cultivated a personality. You've cultivated a reputation because you want to be known a certain way. And listen, it may not be a bad thing. I'm not saying what's the sin that you can't get over. I'm saying, how have you defined yourself? Isaac was a good thing. Isaac was the joy of Abraham's old age. He was the son that God had promised. He brought so much happiness to this family. But God says, I want you to get rid of him. I want you to give him up. Are you willing to give up even the good things of your life for the Lord? God is telling you today to sacrifice it as a burnt offering. It may take time for us to arrive at this place. I think if God had asked Abraham to do this when he first left the land of Ur, or when he first left Haran and came to Canaan, he probably wouldn't have done it. But what kind of God is this that I'm serving here? So the Lord took time and very carefully instructed and taught Abraham who he was before he brought him to this place. And it might be the same thing for us, that God is trying to bring you to the place where we can tackle the big one. You've got all the little small things that need to be dealt with, and God's like, let's mop up a few of these, and then we'll come to the big one, and we'll knock that down. But ultimately, that's where God wants you to be. And I will tell you this, you don't need to wait. You can have that victory today if you want. You've got to face the demand of God to leave everything behind. He said, if you don't even hate your own flesh, you cannot be my disciple. Cannot be, Jesus said. Can you believe that? Cannot be. If you don't renounce everything you have, you cannot be a Christian. Interesting. I've never read an application for church membership or for baptism that said, have you renounced everything that you have? And I'm not just being snarky here. I'm not saying that you ought to have that on there necessarily, but that's what Jesus asked. Have you left everything? What are you holding on to? Well, come back when you get rid of it. Jesus did that to people, remember? Lord, I'll follow you anywhere you go. He goes, yeah, well, if you follow me, you're not going to have anywhere to sleep. And the guy went away. I said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Wait till dad dies, Lord, then I'll be free. And he's like, I don't have time for this. Lord, please let, let me just go home and say goodbye to my family. He goes, no, quit looking back. We got to go now. And we hear those things. Well, that's a little harsh, Jesus. That's your Jesus. That's your Savior. And that's what he was telling his people. Abraham had finally come to this place. He had slowly learned to give up of all the things he was holding on to. He learned to let go of dad, but that was kind of forced on him when his dad died. He learned to let go of Lot. He learned to let go of his monetary gain. He learned to let go of Ishmael and just trust the Lord. But now at the beginning, what does it say? Abraham was tested. God is making, you could say, the final request, the final exam of Abraham's faith. So let's see what he did in verse 3, down to verse 8. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. 
I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. What does Abraham do? Hey, what would you do? The Lord said, tomorrow morning I want you to get up and I want you to go sacrifice your son on Mount Moriah. I've got kids. I've got sons. I know how it feels when you've got your son in your arms. Especially now as my oldest starts to get a little bigger. And you realize that I'm not going to be able to hold this kid like this forever. And you just treasure those moments and you love it. And you're like, thank God for this kid. I'm so excited. I, I, God, how have you been so good to me? And then God says, get up and go offer him as a burnt offering. Look at this. Abraham gets up without delay. He prepares himself. He had been preparing himself his whole life for this, this final crucible of the self. The final pressure to see what he was made of. And they head to the land of Moriah. Doesn't tell us where that was, but 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1 tells us that Moriah was near Jerusalem. It was the mountain tradition states, and I'm inclined to believe it, although I don't think it's a slam dunk textually, that Mount Moriah was actually where the temple would be. So that's significant if that's the case. It's near Jerusalem in any case. About 50 miles away from Beersheba, which is where they're living. And he takes the two servants with him. Says, you guys stay with the stuff. We're going to go back up. With his young son, placing the wood on his back. How do you think that felt? Putting the wood on his own son's back. How old is this kid? I don't know. I've heard ideas ranging from younger than 10 to maybe before 15 or 16, somewhere in there. How do you think Abraham felt at this moment? They're walking up this mountain, and he knows what's going to happen at the top of that mountain. He's had three days to think about it. And then Isaac asks where the sacrifice is. Abraham gives a statement here. says, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. And actually, you don't get this in English, but the Hebrew here, where he says in verse 8, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You could read that in Hebrew, depending on how you inflected it, that God will provide my son as the lamb for a burnt offering. So there, there's a, a double meaning in that. So there's the grief, but there's also the hope there that God's going to provide. We read in Hebrews, or we do read in Hebrews eleven nineteen that Abraham believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. That's what Abraham was thinking here. Because God had already told him, he said, through Isaac shall your seed be called. And now he says, go sacrifice Isaac. He goes, well, God's not a liar, so I must be getting ready for a real miracle here. And he told the servants, we will go up and then we will come back. So he has every intention here of sacrificing his son. He's not trying to wriggle out of it. He's not trying to go and do something different. He has every intention of getting up on that mountain, killing his own son and offering him up as a burnt offering to the Lord. What a change it's been wrought in Abraham since he first came to the promised land. He trusts God now to the point where he'll even give up his own son. Before, he would lie to Pharaoh and lie to Abimelech about who his wife was because he was afraid that he and his wife were both going to be killed. But now, he's trusting God even this far. He didn't hesitate. Early in the morning, he got up. When God calls us to leave behind our identity, 
the things that we love the most, there's only one proper response. There's no negotiating with God. The response is to nail it to the cross. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's like, I, I've already died. This life is just Christ using my life. And that's what a Christian's life is to be, a mirror of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, who went to the cross and died and then came up out of the grave, was raised from the dead, in the same way we are to die to ourselves and rise to a newness of life. Baptism symbolizes that. You go under the water, you die to yourself, you come out of the water, and you're alive again with a newness of life. Our lives that have been corrupted by sin and hardened by trouble that's come across our way, they're to be put to death. Get rid of it. Sacrifice it as a burnt offering to the Lord. That's what repentance and conversion is as a Christian. And your life is to be a greater and greater realization and a greater and greater obedience to that truth. Problem is, we have been taught to worship not God, but your authentic self. Have you heard that one? You want to find who you really are. That's what life is all about. There is a, a, a sliver of truth there. And we're going to talk about some of that. But what it turns into is, if you want it, do it. If you like it, then get it. If you don't want it, you don't got to do it. You do you. You live out your life. And if anybody tells you that you shouldn't be allowed, or that you can't do that, or if anybody tries to prevent you, then you have every right to be offended and angry and to step up and try to take what you want. And this even creeps into the church, where God becomes your, your life coach. He's just trying to give you the best tips on how to get all the things you want and how to be happy. The problem is, when you do that, you know how you know whether you've been worshiping yourself or worshiping God? If you run up against something in Scripture that totally goes against what you think and what you want, you immediately check out and say, well, I disagree with that. We've seen a lot of folks lately in the news and even in our own lives that they believe in God, so to speak, and they love the church and they're Christians, but all of a sudden they're, they're faced with an a opportunity to either go against the grain of culture or go against the Lord Jesus Christ, and they pick culture every single time. That's when you're worshiping yourself. You love Jesus as long as Jesus is telling you the things you already believe. But if you change your mind, we come to the church and we insist that God has to change his mind too. Who are we worshiping here, really? God wants everything from you. God demands everything from you. Not just the pieces you don't like. Say, God, I, I want to die to myself. Here's this list of 10 things that I don't like about myself. God goes, great, I'll help you with that. But I want the rest of it too. Well, God, this isn't a bad thing. Yeah, I know, but I want that. I need everything from you. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus. He was rich. He was young. He was a ruler. He was somebody. And he came and he fell at Jesus' feet. And he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know what the Bible says, right? Don't steal, don't covet, don't commit adultery. And he goes, well, I've done all that, but there's got to be something more. He says, yeah, there is. And in Mark 10, verses 21 through 23, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go 
Sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus put a finger on the one thing that guy could not bear to lose. This is astonishing. We're not used to this. We're used to giving people the hard sell and giving the pitch and wanting them to get in and sign on the dotted line. Jesus is like, I want to know the one thing that you're not willing to do. Yeah, that's what you've got to do to be saved. Jesus didn't tell everybody to sell all that they had. He didn't tell the centurions to sell all they had. He didn't tell the disciples to sell all that they had. But they didn't have a problem with obsession with their stuff. This guy did. So for him, the entry was given up everything. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. It's amazing. He would have followed Jesus if he could have kept his stuff. But the Lord said, no, that's not how I do things. Everything goes on the altar. And Jesus said, it's going to be hard for people who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. I'll go a step further. I would say those who are content with life will have a hard time entering the kingdom of God. Those who are content with themselves will have a hard time entering the kingdom of God. Can I give you a weird thing that I've noticed in the church? This has happened a lot. It's not in the Bible, but I've seen it in our day and age. That people will be in the church, serving the Lord, going on missions trips, weeping during worship, all the rest of it. Then they will make a change in their life. But the one I've seen a lot is they'll lose a whole bunch of weight. Now all of a sudden, they're attractive. Now all of a sudden, they look good. Now all of a sudden, people are noticing them. And it's just a few minutes until you don't see them anymore. And what I have come to realize is that these people were never worshiping the Lord. They felt badly about themselves. Church made them feel good about themselves. And the minute they started feeling good about themselves without the church, they were gone and out the door. I'm not sure if that's stony ground or thorny ground, but it's not good soil. And you can apply that to anything. People that come to church whenever they don't have a boyfriend, and then as soon as they get one, they're gone. People who come to church when their finances are falling apart, and then as soon as everything gets back together, they're gone. People who cannot bear to lose what they have, they're finding their joy in something else other than Jesus Christ. And the thing is, we get all uppity because, like, no, this defines me. This characteristic you're talking about defines me. This job defines me. That event from my past defines me. This relationship defines me. No, it doesn't. It binds you. Don't you know that? It has bound you up to where you cannot live without it. You cannot live without the way that you've interpreted that memory. You cannot live without that other person in your life. You cannot live without the prestige you get from that job. None of those things are inherently sinful, but they're binding you because you're letting them define you. You're still thinking like the world, and you're not thinking like God. The world views everything through that physical lens. But Paul says, from now on, we regard nothing according to the flesh, but everything according to the Spirit. Paul would rebuke the Corinthians for acting, as he said, like mere men. Don't you love that? You're acting like mere men. Mere men look to God as an accessory or a boss. Oh, you got to do what the boss says, right? No, he's your God. He is your God. We use that word so much, we lose track of what it means. People around the world do amazing things in the name of their gods. 
And they're false gods. They're weird gods. They're strange. They, they, they do all these reprehensible moral things. There are people that will engage in things like cannibalism for their God. And then we serve the true and living God who only ever asks good things of us and we dare to say, no, Lord. God demands the death of everything that defines you. Now, you might write this off. You say, yeah, that's really true. Now, this thing that defines me, God would never tell me to give that up. So I'm okay. If God would tell me to give it up, I would, but he would never ask me to. Don't be too sure. God told Abraham, go take your only son and sacrifice him on the top of the mountain. I think that's part of the reason the Lord did such an extreme thing here, because he's trying to communicate a message to you and to me. You've got to find a way to crucify your entire self, your relationships, your possessions, your attitudes, your deeply held opinions. God requires that sacrifice from you. He doesn't suggest it as the best possible plan, but if you want to go the, the silver route instead of the gold or platinum, that's okay. That's not how it works. Abraham knew that. And he knew that even though God's command here seemed tough, even cruel, he said, I know God, and I know that God's going to provide what I need on the other side. Maybe he'll raise Isaac from the dead. Do you have enough faith to trust in God and hang everything you've got on the cross? Every day, God wants you to do this a little bit more, but you know, he's waiting for you to come in and just sacrifice it all. Just to get it all out. It's not, so don't misunderstand me, but it's almost like an exorcism. It's almost like you've got something inside you that's messing you up and God wants to rip it out of you. I'm not saying that you all have demons, okay? So bear with me. I'm using it as an illustration. It's a similar thing. You've got something inside of you that shouldn't be there. And God's like, I want to take that away. And then you'll be brand new. Abraham got it. And they get up to the top of the mountain and we read verses 9 through 14. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. So, Abraham prepared the offering. Jewish tradition, which is not in scripture, tells us that Isaac did this willingly. That Isaac was told what God had told him to do, and that Isaac submitted to this. I, I think that could be the case, because we're going to see that Isaac was a very righteous man too. But we cannot know. Maybe Isaac was kicking and screaming while Abraham bound him up. Maybe he was weeping. No, Dad, no, please, what are you doing? This was to be, the word that is used here is olah, which means a whole burnt offering. Most offerings that you would make in the Old Testament, if you were to bring a cow or a sheep, you would, you would cut it up, you would put the entrails and the hoofs and the things that you couldn't eat on the altar, and then you would take the meat home and you would eat it as part of the feast. So you weren't wasting the whole thing. 
there were certain things called an olah, a whole burnt offering, which is everything goes on that altar and it is all consumed. That's what God is asking of him here. So Abraham has every intention of butchering his own child. Takes out the knife. And at the last second, I think when in Abraham's mind it was already done. You know when you don't really want to do something, but then you finally mentally click and you know it's going to happen no matter what? That's where Abraham was, and that's where the angel of the Lord comes in and says, Stop! Aren't you glad he said stop? And we should have expected that God would not really want Isaac to be destroyed. There are some traditions that say, well, no, Isaac did die, but God raised him from the dead. No, he says, don't, don't touch the boy. It makes no sense if he's already killed him. And he sees a ram with its horns caught in the thicket. And God provided that for a sacrifice instead. I wonder if Abraham ever felt bad for the animals that he sacrificed. I bet you on this day he didn't. Better that thing than my son, huh? Look what God says in verse 12. Now I know that you fear God. Remember we saw in verse 1, God is testing Abraham. That's what that word trial is, right? So I'm going through a trial. We usually mean hard time when we say trial. But to try something, let's see what you're made of. That's what a trial is. It's a test. This was the final test that we read about in scripture of Abraham, when God is going to finally remove everything earthly from this man. This was never about God demanding blood. It was about Abraham's faith, his willingness to give up the most treasured part of himself to be obedient to the Lord. This is the good news, Christian. When you finally nail your identity to the cross, your pursuits and your possessions and your family and your country and the way that you've always thought about yourself and your bitterness and your pride and your favorite parts of life. When you nail that to the cross, God doesn't leave you empty. He doesn't destroy you. He sets you free in that moment. Once you have truly and finally sacrificed that which you love the most, and it has to be that moment when it's already gone in your heart. It has to be that. You can't say, oh yes, I understand, that would be a good thing to do, right? No, no, no. When you have finally given it up, that's when you are forever free from those things. You have been fundamentally transformed as a person. Or no longer are you bound to that relationship, or bound to that house, or bound to that town, or bound to that memory. Peter thought of himself as a fisherman. He was a knowledgeable, hardworking man. He was in charge of a fleet of boats. You kind of get the idea here. And then when Jesus shows up and Jesus asks, can I preach from your boat? Peter says, yeah, fine, preach from my boat. And then Jesus says, hey, let's go fishing. And Peter says to him, listen, tourist, you don't fish in the middle of the day. And I've been fishing all night and I ain't caught anything. But you know, if you want to go fishing, we'll go fishing, fine. Jesus shows him that he was full of pride because they throw out the net and they bring in a catch of fish that they can barely keep on the boat and they got to bring another boat and then both boats start sinking because there's so much fish. He showed Peter that he was incapable on his own. There was another time Jesus said to the Peter, he said, why don't you throw the net on the other side of the boat? You got to think Peter's going, what difference does it make? What side of the boat the net goes on? But the Lord is teaching him, you don't provide for yourself. You're no fisherman. I'm the one that provides these things for you. And in that story that I mentioned before, in Luke 5, 
Verses 8 through 11, when Simon Peter saw that catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Make you a fisher of men. And when they brought their boats to land, here it is, they left everything and followed him. Something fundamental in Peter died that day. And he was given a new identity. You're a fisherman, but I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And he got a new name too, didn't he? We don't remember him as Simon. We remember him as Peter, the rock. That's what God does when we give stuff up. He transforms you. He chips off one more bit of stone off of your heart of flesh. He's got that heart that God made and that is untouched, but it's corrupted and corroded by sin. And God comes in knocking pieces off like he promised to do. Peter was living a shadow life. It was fine, nothing wrong with it, but it was only a shadow of what God really wanted from him. And if he had stuck with it, it would have been a false life. God had something more for him after he was willing to sacrifice the old one. You come with me and I will make you Peter. Peter goes, what difference does it make if I'm called Peter or Simon? The Lord knows later on, people are going to hear that name Peter and it's going to mean something if you come with me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Leave everything behind. And you know, later on, after Jesus was crucified, Peter went fishing. And he didn't catch any more fish. The old clothes didn't fit him anymore. He wasn't Simon the fisherman any longer. He was Peter, the apostle, the fisher of men. He couldn't go back to where he was and try and pick up the old pieces of his life. Later on, we're going to see in Genesis, Jacob whose name means heel catcher, the guy that is about to lose the race. So he grabs the the guy's leg in front of him and trips him up, the dirty, sneaky thief. And God renames him Israel. You hear the name Jacob. We know what it means, but you hear that name Israel. Oh, there's something special about that. God's like, I never intended for you to be a heel catcher. I intended you to be Israel with everything that that name means. Saul was renamed Paul. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Saul is dead. Saul of Tarsus is gone. Paul the apostle is who God has made me to be. God wants to reveal who he's created you to be. So often we think God wants to show you who you really are and who he's created you to be. And what that means is go chase your dreams and get a a degree and go to night school. And it's going to be wonderful. It's so much deeper than that. God wants to transform your heart and your character into something brand new. We think so much like the world. We're defined by our stuff. We're defined by our opinions. Sometimes even defined by our family. But the Lord sees beyond all that. The Lord sees to, let's say for real, the authentic you. And that's what he wants to draw out. Separated from sin. Regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But there's all that mess he's got to liberate you from first. The world will tell you, Love yourself. Accept yourself. You don't even know yourself yet. You don't even know who God could make you to be. God desires to give you a new birth in Christ Jesus. That's why I told Nicodemus in John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You want to see the kingdom? You must be born again. You got to start over. 
We're all afraid that if we give up what we love the most, that dream that you've been nurturing for decades, if you give up what you value most, maybe the way people perceive you, or the things you've worked for the most, you think, well, God will leave me hanging. I won't have anything then. I won't have that relationship to fall back on. I won't have that, that self-picture that always keeps me going. I won't have that dream to chase. I won't know what to do. Then you must not know God very well. You don't know my Jesus. What did Abraham call that place? The Lord will provide. The Hebrew there is Yahweh Yireh. You might know it as Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. God is your provider. And he's always got something better waiting for you on the other side of all this. I have found those who are dissatisfied in their walk with Christ have almost always failed to surrender everything. The people that are just agonized in the presence of God and cannot find the joy and cannot find the peace of the Lord. There's always something they have failed to surrender. To use that analogy I used earlier, God says, I want to take your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. But there's a piece of that stone they're holding on to. And it's uncomfortable and it chafes and it cuts and it hurts. And we blame God. So you've got to give that up. I can't give that up. It's part of me. It defines who I am. There's no way that could possibly change. Won't you let that die today? Don't you want to be liberated from the false self? That Satan has told you this is who you are and this is who you've got to be. The Lord comes in and says, no, you're not Simon, you're Peter. You're not Jacob, you're Israel. You're not Sarai, you're Sarah. The Lord's not going to leave you hanging, I promise. And then verse 15 through 19, coming to the end now. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is... For the purposes of the book of Genesis, the, you could call the final movement in the life of Abraham. You've come through the symphony and now the ode to joy is playing. It's the very end. The promise has been fulfilled in Isaac and now it's been confirmed. God swears by himself. Don't you love that? We say, I swear on the Bible. I swear on my mama's grave. Little kids love to make up things that they swear by, right? He says, I swear by myself because there's nothing higher. God's like, I will do this because it's me. All right? Is I will bless all your descendants. They'll be victorious. All the nations will be blessed through them. Can you see how he's taking the language of all the different promises he'd made along the way and putting them together in one here? Because he's saying, this confirms all of it. Abraham has passed beyond the constraints that were binding him. And finally, he's standing before God in naked faith. And the promise is confirmed to him in a new and special way. How do we know this? Well, it's illustrated through Isaac himself. Abraham had his son before, but Abraham was defined by his son before. Who he was was determined by that kid. He was owned by that relationship. And God says, I'm going to break you of that. You're going to break me of my love for my son? No. You're not free to love your son until you've given him over to me. You can only possess 
and love the people and things around you once you've given them over to God. Until then, it's, it's shadow possession. It's shadow love. There's a lot of us in that love. Have you noticed? Some relationships are more clear than others. Some, I guess you could say occupations, careers, are more clear about this than others. Some personalities are more clear than others. That it's really not about that thing. It's about you. It's not really about me and my wife. It's about me. It's not really about because I love this thing so much. It's because it's about me and I want everyone to love me. You ever (laughs) make fun of the wrong thing? that somebody has somehow attached their identity to, like a football team or a movie franchise that they happen to love. And it's like, you make fun of that thing, you're making fun of me. And we're like, why? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not you. I love you. You know, I don't like that football team, but I love you. And I'll, no, it's, we're, we're together, man. And it's like, that's not healthy. That's a silly example, but let's expand that out. You ever known that, that boy that was just obsessed with that girl and she's afraid and he's like, no, I love her so much. I'm, I'm so, I can't stand the thought of anybody else being with her. And she's afraid to go outside because of this guy. It's like, you don't really love her. It's not about her. It's about you and your mess. Now, that's a very extreme negative example. But there's a whole spectrum of stuff in the middle. And God says, I want to break you of all of it till it's just me and just you. And then God gives it back most of the time. Sometimes he goes, no, you can't have that. If I give you this back, you're going to fall right back into the same old mess. But I found most of the time God gives it right back, except now it's a real sincere love because your love is through Jesus Christ. Your love for that person is rooted in something eternal, the Lord himself. It's rooted in something only good, which is the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Apart from God, you've always got fear, the fear of losing something or losing someone. There's guilt tied to your pursuits in life. There's frustration tied to your past and your memories. But once you've got them in Christ, you've got them truly. And none of that is attached to it. Once something is dead, it no longer has any power of you. Isn't that true? I can't remember who it was. It was some philosopher or other who said, a man can never be a man until his father dies. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of putting it. But it's like once you don't have anybody looking over your shoulder anymore, now you can really be who you are. But there's another way. And that is to come to Jesus Christ and find your identity only in who God calls you and who God has said you are. So now you've still got that relationship. You've still got that pursuit. You've still got that dream, except it's rooted in something that is not you. You've already got all your dreams fulfilled in Christ. You've got all the love you'll ever need in Christ. You've got all of the forgiveness for all the mess you've made in Christ. Therefore, these things don't have any more control over you because you've died to them already. That where it was dysfunctional and weird and it was out of phase and now it's harmonious because it's not all about that anymore. God wants to do that with you. He wants to slowly peel away every layer from your heart until he reveals who you really are. And then he wants to shape that into his image. And then all the stuff is just stuff. Nothing else has any claim on you anymore. And you're truly liberated. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. <laughs> if you found treasure hidden in a field, and you knew what it cost to get that field, you would not spare anything. It's all for sale. And your friends and family would come up to you, are you crazy? You're selling your house? You're selling your car? All your clothes? You're selling the jewelry? How? You're going to get rid of the nicest things you've got. And you're like, well, I'm trying to buy that field over there. And they go, that's ridiculous. But you know there's treasure hidden in that field. And that what you're going to pay, so to speak, the cost to gain it, is not even worthy to be compared with what you're going to gain once you have it. But make no mistake, it does cost everything to acquire that pearl. You show up to the pearl merchant and you say, I'd like to buy this pearl, please. How much does it cost? Everything you've got. Everything I've got. Wow, okay. Well, let me see. I've got $50, goes, $70, $73.14. Oh, that's great. What else you got? Well, I've, I've got you know, a checking account with some money in it. I've got about you know, $2,000 in that. That'd be nice, but anyway, you know, he says, okay, well, I'm going to need that. Oh, I can't believe he's writing a check. I, it's okay. I guess I can fall back on my savings. Oh, you have savings too. Yeah, I have savings. I have, I have a retirement account. And okay, well, you're going to need to give that over too. Okay, well, uh, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll make more money when I get back to my job. Oh, you've got a job? Well, you're going to need to give that up too. Give up my job? Well, well how am I going to put a roof over my head? Oh, you have a roof? You have a house? We need to give the house over too. Well, th there's a house. Well, then I'm just going to be left with the shirt on my back. Well, I'm going to need the shirt on your back too. But then how am I going to take care of my family, my wife and my kids? I'm going to need your wife and your kids too. That's what everything means. We try to redefine everything. The Lord says, everything you've got. But once you're there, guys, God receives you. He forgives you. He takes the locus, the location of your identity and your love, and he takes it outside of something temporal, and he puts it in something eternal. So now you are not dependent upon that relationship or that job working out or the way that you've managed to work through all the mess in your past. Now it's God that gives you that stuff, so you're free to either cut it loose or enjoy it without any pain. But you've got to immolate all those things before the Lord and stand naked before him first. But listen, is there anything that's not worth losing in order to gain Christ? What God has to offer you by his spirit? The one who's eternal and gracious and will never abuse your trust and never remove his love for you? Your love for your kids and your life and your work, it's just a, it's a shadow it's a summer shimmering shadow of what it could be when God breaks you of your need for those things. You ever known a mom that loved her kids, but it really wasn't true love. It was a selfish kind of overbearing, domineering love, and it drove the kids away. And now nobody really wants to be around her anymore, but she loves her kids. That, that seed is in every relationship you've got. But when you come and you take it and it's no longer that, you've given it over to the Lord Jesus and he gives it back. Now, you, you don't have to define yourself by that, those kids. You don't have to get all of your love from that woman or that man. You don't have to be afraid that they're going to leave you someday because it's all rooted in God. Isn't that so much better? But you've got to give it over first. Following Christ is all about giving up everything, even the things you see as good and necessary. When you do that, nothing can touch you. What can the world threaten you with when you've died to everything? Like you don't understand 
I've already lost everything. Well, we're going to take away your house and all your money. I've already lost that. Well, we're going to torture your body. It's okay. I've already made my peace with that. Even your family. I'll see them again. You can't touch me. You can't torture me. You can't hold anything over my head. You can't threaten me. Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's what it means to be born again. To return from the grave in Christ's image. And you know what? That's when you become more useful to the people around you. Now you're not dependent on them. Now you're only dependent on Christ. Now you can love them like they're supposed to be loved. You can lead them the way they're supposed to be led. You can work your job justly and righteously and not feel pressured and tempted to do it the wrong way and sin. You're not defined by the dollar amount in your bank account. You're not defined by your past or the dreams of the future. That kind of person is something that everybody needs in their lives. Wouldn't you agree? Every family needs people like that. Every workplace and neighborhood and city and church needs people like that. And that's what Jesus wants to do for every one of us. And then turn us loose on the world and say, now, go tell some other people the good news. When God called Abraham, he was a coward. He was childless and he was an idolater. He wasn't even worshiping the Lord. It was only through the grace of God that he became the man that God needed him to be. God wants to make you into the man or the woman that he sees without sin, born again through his son Jesus. But it takes great faith to lose everything, Christian. And you can see in this passage the picture of Christ. The father in this story, prepared to sacrifice his only son on a mountain near Jerusalem. The son who bore the wood on his back as he went up the mountain. The father, the one holding the knife. And then God said, I will provide myself a sacrifice. Through it all was the hope of resurrection. This is a picture of Jesus and who he would be. God said, don't sacrifice your son, Abraham. I'll sacrifice my son, and it'll count for everybody's son. Jesus Christ died on that mountain to grant you the newness of life, to remove all the gunk that's ruining your life. But first, you've got to die to yourself, and you've got to die daily. I don't know what it is for you. That's why I've been using a whole lot of examples. I don't know what you should do about it, but you probably know. Maybe God will grant it back to you. If it's something like your husband or your wife, then yeah, he probably will. But if it's something that's just causing you all kinds of trouble and sin, he probably won't. Because he knows. And you probably know too, by the way. Be honest with yourself. But you will only have it as a shadow until you do. God has a new name for you. Do you know that book of Revelation, God says he's going to give you a white stone with a new name written on it that nobody knows except him and you? That's a picture of what it means to be with Jesus. There's an identity that you have that only God knows. And it'll be grounded in his eternity, which means it'll be everlasting. Not the silly trappings of this world. You know, there's some people that have defined their whole lives by like TV shows. What happens if tomorrow there's a major war and all that stuff goes away? Now what? What, what do they have left? You can apply that to anything. People that define themselves by money when their stock market crashes, they've got nothing left to live for. Soldiers who define themselves by war come home and they suffer because they don't know what else to live for. 
people who define themselves by the relationships of their families, they lose those people and then now they're just broken. Don't you want to be liberated from that possibility? That's what Jesus is offering you. But I end by reminding you, as wonderful as it is, and as and the positive appeal that God gives us, this is not optional. It's mandatory if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And there are many who have not come to that place yet. And the Lord, I think like Abraham, will shepherd us along the way. And he'll let us take those small steps. But the Lord is always looking for us to finally walk through the door. Tonight, you've got to give up everything that you love about yourself and everything that you've used to define yourself and to do it truly so that it no longer has any hook in your heart. Even things like bitterness, guys, will define us. What do you got to do to make sure that that's not going to have a hook anymore? Sometimes it's as simple as saying we're not going to think or act that way anymore. Sometimes it's more serious, like I've got to turn in a resignation tomorrow. I don't know. But you know, and God knows, and he's speaking to you right now. Once you do it, though, as painful as it is, that's when you can truly begin to live. Otherwise, you'll be like Jonah, trapped in the belly of that whale. Jonah was trapped in that whale long after he got out of there, wasn't he? He was still bound up in his own prejudice and hate. But the Lord says, I'm going to give you the opportunity to be liberated from those things. And if not for yourself, do it for the Lord, who gave up his only son. Think of all we were talking about, how awful it would have been for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. God actually did that with his son Jesus for you. Hasn't that earned anything? But not just out of cruelty, but because he wanted to transform you into a new creation, apart from sin, apart from guilt, with only the hope of eternal life on the other side. That's what God offers if you are willing to lose everything on purpose.